Hello there, SE land. This is Twig. Twig's SE Reflections, episode number 67. Going to talk about positive deviancy today. Later this month and later in January 2016, I'm going to be in Western Massachusetts giving a little workshop presentation on a thing I started doing five, six years ago called Where to Start. Kind of a, a look at what you'd really like to have built up inside of your SE sessions, inside of my SE sessions at least, to get things moving in the right direction and know that me and my client, we're on the same page and we're in the same room and should be working together and kind of get those, quote, initial conditions, as Stephen Hoskinson names them out, how to get those moving. And the way that I go about that, that workshop, those ideas, that kind of protocol that I kind of lay out in that workshop is that I reference this idea of positive deviancy. And uh, I'd like to like to share a little bit about that with you today. Positive deviancy, I first learned about that from David Murphy. He's an SE practitioner out in New York. Really, really great guy. Um, structural integration fella as well. And one time we were in Los Angeles, and we used to rap a lot about, like, how to make SE a transformative, you know, international movement of people feeling better. And and in that, he, he mentioned this idea, this notion of positive deviancy, which I then looked into quite a lot after the fact. It's, it's something that's used most frequently, as far as I know, in the development world, like folks who are helping communities, either troubled and suffering communities or communities that are trying to do development works and kind of improve their status and stature and such. The notion is that rather than going in as a classic development program where a plan is written, some far off country, some desk, uh, kind of a member of that organization goes to the troubled place to deliver the plan. You know, we're going to build a bridge or put in a health center, teach people how to use condoms or something, whatever. I don't know. But there's there's definitely like this kind of notion of a top-down approach out there in in the development world, you know, professionals figuring out what they should do for other people who don't know how to change their situation. There are other ideas out there in the development world. One of them is this idea of positive deviancy, where rather than going in with a form related plan, an idea of what you're supposed to teach these people. Instead, you go in and you get to know the community a bit. You talk with people, you investigate this notion, who's doing better inside of this same situation than other folks? What are they doing differently? And can that difference be replicated, be shared, be expressed to everybody else so that they can take advantage of it as well. So, you know, one thing you do is you, with this, you kind of go in and you see which children are kind of seem more at ease or seem to be better fed or have more nutrition, as it were. Um, you know, which, which of these families seem to be kind of working with their kids better? And can we reproduce those kinds of things? One, one program I heard about in Brazil that, that had noticed that um, some families were doing better, had had seen that some of the families were cooking up the rinds, the casca, of various different fruits. 
and putting it into the meals. And that was giving a little extra nutrition for the kids. And this was up in the north, I guess. And so um, there became a whole program to actually take the casca, take the rinds from bananas and mangoes and such, and dry them, pulverize them, make them into a meal, and make that powder available to families and kind of raise the nutrition for a lot of people inside the community and not just a few, and um, share the information about doing that in general. Helps quite a lot to figure out local people have solutions to their problems and that those solutions are localized. They can be reproduced. What was... Well, you know, I, I saw this a lot, actually, in Congo. My partners over there, where I was working with Tasmukwa and, and folks, uh, who who I should say, Tasmukwa, some of you know, has um, finished the SEP training. He did that in Europe, Switzerland, This last finished this last year, and is back in Congo as a SEP. That's, that's something I'm excited about. Well, um... His organization and the people that he travels around with that I got to spend a little time with back in 2008, 2009, they had a real positive deviancy approach. They would really look for local solutions to problems and and find inside of a, a community somebody who had solved or had the similar problem and found a way to ameliorate it, solve it in some way, and then to try to help spread that idea of how to solve that around to other folks. Positive deviancy. It's deviant because, of course, there's a norm. The norm maybe in these cases that I'm talking about here, things aren't going so well for people. But then there's somebody who's deviant to that, a little outside of that norm, and um, it's positive. What they're doing is positive. And if we, can, if we can see that, if we can recognize what that is, if we can find out how to reproduce it, share it with others, well, you can, you can kind of make good use of local solutions. I think, and I have for a long time, that there is such a thing like this inside of our SE sessions. You must have seen by now that some of your sessions are smoother, are uh, easier to facilitate, feel more productive, seem to, you know, do the thing that you're trying to help happen. Others, you know, it's kind of like, well, they stall or they go sideways or some of them just tumble down deep diving into the vortexes and you spend 45 minutes trying to repair what what happened there, you know. Some of them don't go so smooth and some of them do go quite smooth. And some of them, you know, even border on that magic session where it's just like, it's almost like you don't have to do anything. You just ask what what happens and what do you notice and what happens next and as you do, the person turns their attention inside and feels and participates and joins with that and is curious about that and things start to change and they notice those changes and they track those changes and it has a certain kind of amplitude. It hits that threshold where it says, okay, that's enough of that and it starts to settle out and more or less everybody is just wide-eyed and, um, well, enjoying it, I suppose, I hope. The magic session, it's out there. It also is something of a deviancy, right? It's a little deviant to the norm. Maybe the norm is something that feels a little bit more like we're trying to get into the same room together. We're trying to get 
engaged and invested and involved in this kind of process together. Maybe that's a little bit more of the norm. And these super smooth magic sessions, maybe those are the, the deviant edge of things. They're very positive, though, and I think we can learn from them. You can, I can, we can, we can learn from them. One place, or the easiest place, of course, to see the magic session and to try to kind of dissect a little bit about what might go into those or what is, seems to be available inside of those sessions is to look at these demonstration sessions that we see in the trainings and the, the main training and the post-advanced trainings or any of these famous demonstrations from Peter Levine any of the other seasoned teachers, practitioners, it's really obvious that certain things are easier for them than than they are for a lot of us in our office, maybe for you in your office. It, you know, um, let's, let's look at some of those. Some of you, I should say, have probably heard me talk just in this direction before, and that's just part of the way it goes. You'll hear repeats here. Um... There, there's a difference. There's a difference between, well, there's a difference between sessions that you do with your colleagues inside of the training, somebody who's engaged and informed about the process, has a certain access to the information, has been investing in their, their time and their money, their, their travel, your colleagues in the training, your sessions with them, they probably go differently or smoother maybe than your sessions with your clients back home in your office. That's even more the case when you're a trainer and you're in the front of the room and somebody is either elects from within the group or is a special guest client coming from outside. That's, that kind of like changes everything. And you get, you get a, you know, you, you might have some challenge with that as well, you know, how to, how to maintain the person's attention in front of a crowd, how to, how to help a person not feel too uncomfortable while other people are watching, all of those things. But at the same time as those other little challenges might come forward, you, you get a, a huge hit of help when the practitioner has this kind of level of prestige that they're in the front of the room when the client who gets to come to the front of the room sees that everybody else is paying attention when um well when you're a guest client and you're coming from away you've traveled you've invested you've got in a hotel your own therapist has said hey i think i have a a, th- a thing for us to do we should we should get you in to go do one of these demonstration sessions maybe with peter levine or something you look into Peter Levine and you, you find out that he's got like a dozen books translated into a dozen different languages, something, you know, something similar to that. And, and that just, it just changes things. It changes a lot. It, it doesn't, you know, mean that you don't have to know what you're doing. In fact, you only get to that position if you do know what you're doing. Peter Levine does know what he's doing and that matters. And inside of like us, dissecting what helps to bring about the magic session what are those deviant things to the rest of our sessions that's a place for us to see in these two places um, our sessions with our colleagues in the training or the super informed client or um, our observation of watching sessions happen from the front of the room when we're when we're at the trainings these are different than 
than the normal, you know, it's Tuesday, it's nine, it's Tuesday, it's 1030, it's Tuesday, it's 115 sessions in our office. And people are, you know, just they're coming in and maybe they're coming a little late and, uh, and they got a lot to tell us about what happened this last week. And they're really concerned about what's going to come forward this next week. And those big problems of their past maybe be a little bit out of out of the range of, of their focus of attention, even though maybe you might think that you need to help quell or quiet or extinguish some of the nervous system upset that they just naturally every day deal with that might be lingering from the past and kind of upsetting what happened this last week and what's going to happen this next week. And, you know, all these things get in there and, and get kind of confusing. I think they can get confusing about what it is that we're doing and how to do it and how to get our clients participating with what it is that we're doing in our office so that we can, you know, put, put to good use this, um, this work that we're, we're all so keen on. Well, I don't know if this is a complete list. I don't think it is. Um, but I, I've, I've collected a little list over the years of things that I think that we can see inside those magic sessions that when we don't have them, it's almost maybe more important to try to develop these things, these attributes, rather than try to continue on in hopes of cultivating the magic session without them. And, and with that, maybe I'll, I'll kind of go through a little list that I have mostly in my head, but I did, I did write them down a little bit today to, to see. Maybe, maybe I'll grab some of these. You know, one, of course, is that client has to have enough investment in, in the fact that they're there with you. You know, if they, if they come late, if they don't show up, that's a good example. If they don't show up, it's pretty hard to help them. So there's a certain amount of investment that needs to happen. I'm not saying I know how much it is, but there is a continuum along which person is really invested. They'll change their time to come get an hour with you. They'll, you know, find a babysitter or leave work or deal with traffic in order to invest their time and attention toward getting your help. Having that investment helps and makes a big difference. You know, you can see a person who travels across the state or the country to go do a session with Peter Levine um, at one of his, you know, post-advanced classes. It's a big deal. It's a big investment. And I'll say it makes it a little bit easier when you're going to redirect a person's attention if they're invested in the process rather than, you know, they, as far as they're concerned, they could be anywhere. They could be late or not there at all. That makes a big difference. Investment. It's, uh, it's something that we're probably looking to have. And if we don't have it, we're looking to how we can cultivate more of it. With that, there's a certain thing that when the therapist has enough prestige for the client, you know, the therapist's prestige is strong enough, it, it makes it a lot easier for the client to accept a practitioner's redirection or an invitation or intervention that kind of pauses, slows down, uh, invites a person's attention in some other direction. You know, it's not always that we're telling people what to do differently than what they're already doing. And it is something that we can notice that if, if we're just going to follow our client's attention everywhere that they might want to go on their own, 
without us helping to guide and facilitate it in one direction or another that might be more clinically helpful, more therapeutically helpful, then, uh, you know, they, they, maybe they don't need to come to us. They could just be talking to a friend or a co- you know, colleague at work or just an acquaintance of theirs. They don't, they don't need our guidance per se unless we're also there to help something new happen. And a lot of times then that requires, particularly for people who are, you know, a bit more down on the distress side of the spectrum of things, that requires us often helping to redirect or kind of give something else for people to pay attention to, or at least help them notice other things inside of their own experience that they can pay attention to. To do that redirection, we often need enough prestige in their mind and their attention and their um, kind of credit for us for them to be willing to kind of turn and go along with us. So, you know, there's lots of ways to create that. There's lots of things that get in the way of that, but therapist prestige, enough, enough prestige matters here. Um, curiosity, you'll hear me talk about this on the podcast and in language classes and stuff. I say like curiosity is like air in the room. Like if you took all the air out of the room, it would just be like, everything would go flat. Everybody would be laying on the floor. The same thing happens in an SE session when you take the curiosity out of the room or if you don't have it in the first place. And of course, some places along the, along, you know, you get traumatized as it were, you start losing your curiosity about things pretty quickly. It's like, who, who wants to pay attention to new things when everything just feels, everything that changes feels like it could be threatening. You tend to maybe move toward keeping things the same or already knowing how it's going to go. Oh, it's just like it was the last time. The lack of curiosity or the like the dearth of curiosity, it's its a real killer for sessions. So the need for curiosity, the, to cultivate it, to develop it, to help bring it out, major, major thing. Without it, it's just uh, not going to go anywhere. The momentum, just like taking the air out of the room. I always put a little star next to curiosity. It's such a, It's such an incredibly important thing in our work to be curious about things. Well, then you'd have participation, the willingness for the client to participate. Of course, some of these are all very close and look similar to one another. Maybe they are similar. Maybe they're just different words for the same thing. But there's a there's a thing here where if you ask, if you ask for somebody to notice something or pay attention to something or report on something or feedback on something or tell you a little bit more about something, and and they do it, it makes things easier. If they don't do it, if they're not willing to participate in that, if they just maybe shrug their shoulders or, you know, don't don't lean into with their own curiosity the participation that you're inviting or asking for, you're going to have, I would say, a hard time ever getting to that magic session where things are happening of their own and everybody's of interest and interested in what's happening. Participation. It's, a, it's another one here. Appreciation of the problem, you know, that that we, this kind of touches on investment, but that we have a, we have a real appreciation that there's a reason for us to be doing this together, that, that we should be in a room, just the two of us, that you should be paying me for my time, that, that we should be focusing our attention in this way, that, that there is some kind of problem that is worthy of all of that and can, should accept our participation, our kind of investment 
in dealing with so that it can be different makes a big difference, not only for the client, for them to respect and acknowledge the the problem state, but also f- when the client can see that you as the practitioner appreciates the problem state and can kind of help to increase their investment and participation if they think that you you have an awareness of just what it is that's going on for them and, and why it is that this feels so raw and so real and so uncomfortable. It's not just something that they're making up. Symptoms, things that are driving people crazy, it really does hurt. And if everybody, you and the client, can have an appreciation that the problem is real, then it, um, it does help for that, all these things to come together for that magic session to happen. With it, then, it's nice when when we've got a contract together where we have an agreement about how we're going to work, about what kind of thing we're going to do. That doesn't necessarily mean that we know the whole story when we start the contract. It doesn't mean that clients are completely informed about every last thing that's going to happen, but that we have an agreement that we're going to do this in our office and not that. You know, I don't I don't know what that is for you. Um I like I like Lois. He's a wonderful assistant out there in Western Massachusetts. She's got a great line. She says, like, you know, other people sell that in their store, in their storefront. I, I sell other things, you know. So so some therapists they they practice catharsis and kind of screaming and kind of over the topness in their sessions and, and that's kind of what they offer. And some clients come with an expectation that that's, that's what we're going to do. This is trauma work and we're going to be really, you know, big emotions and lots of fitting and crying and maybe like pounding on the wall or something. And, and Lois has this nice line, like other people sell that and I don't. Well, it's nice to have a contract about what it is that you sell, what it is that you're doing, what it is that you're helping with and what it is that your kind of scope of practice kind of focuses on and helps maintain. Like I say, it doesn't necessarily be that you have to mean, doesn't necessarily mean that you have to lay out every line and word about how this is going to go. A lot of that would just be too much at the beginning and just get kind of get in the way. But we do have to have a certain contract that says we're in this together and we're doing this together rather than something else. If you're trying to do one thing and your client's trying to do something else, unlikely to see that magic session come forward. A good contract helps to pull that into pull that into being. Also, then is um, this, this one's a little out of order. In fact, all of these are out of order. They just kind of grow and build and influence one another. But the ability to notice differences, you know. Um, You'll see this. You'll see this just over and over again. Some people will globalize their responses to their experiences. They'll say things like, "Well, it's always the same," or "It's the same as last time," or "Oh, I feel it all over." Now, you ask, "How do you notice that now? How do you notice that tension now? How do you notice that buzzing now? How do you notice that light, pleasurable feeling now?" And they'll say, "All over," or "In my body," and that globalized answer, that non-differentiated answer, it's going to make it really hard for pendulation to happen. It's going to make it really hard for things to change. going to make it really hard for us to be able to notice and recognize that things aren't the same. And that's, of course, what we're trying to get at, things not being the same, getting out of fixity into flow, as Peter often says. It's like 
we want to be able to watch things as they change, as they become different. And so being able to notice differences is, a, is an attribute that if a client doesn't have that pretty much toward the beginning, rather than dropping too far into the process of asking people to track and notice what happens next and all of that, probably better, probably more necessary to first establish just the willingness and ability to recognize that this is different than that. The left side feels different than the right side or, you know, upper body feels different than lower body or sometimes the, it's it's more difficult in the morning and by the afternoon when I've talked to some people and had some time during the day, I feel a little bit better. It's important to notice differences and clients that come in with a ready capacity for noticing differences, you can tell that your work is going to go easier, smoother with them. And folks who don't have that, it's kind of a place to on where to start. I'm going to have to start by helping to establish the ability to notice that things are sometimes worse. That means that other times they're not as bad as that, or it's this, you know, tightness or this giggly feeling over here. And it's not that over there, those differences, those differences matter. Well, uh, let's see, you'd have to also um, have a certain awareness of the process. This kind of goes over to contract, but clients who've maybe read Waking the Tiger, or you can see this inside of your sessions with your colleagues at the training, it happens right away. You, you show up in the training by the second, third day, you're sitting in a triad, and you're working with somebody, and already your questions Oh, can you tell me what you notice now? Oh, what do you become aware of next? All of that. It makes so much more sense to the person you're working with in the training than it does to your client back home in your office, simply because your colleague is more aware of the process, is more aware that there's some kind of in point to this, that this goes somewhere, that there's a rationale behind this. It's not always easy to, or, or wise really, to explain the entire process to your clients before you go through it. In fact, it's one of the hallmarks of something you'll see Peter Levine do. He often kind of runs people through a little experiment before he explains too much of the process. And, and by doing that, he gives them the opportunity to experience it without having been told what they're going to experience. And with that, it becomes a little bit more of your own, like, oh, I see, that's that's what this is like. I make this funny sound, feel this vibration, my heart goes a little faster for a moment, then it slows down, and then I, I feel just a little bit more settled. And then the explanation of like, oh, you know, that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do many, many times here. We're just going to feel how things kind of come up like that, and they have their moment, and then they settle out like that, and then we're just going to notice the differences through all of that. That awareness of the process as it grows makes it a lot easier for people to participate, to invest without any awareness of the process, without just going in completely cold. It can be kind of hard for clients to be willing to kind of go along. So having some awareness, some sufficient amount of awareness of the process, it really does help. And you'll see that it becomes ever easier the more awareness of the process a person has more likely than to see the the magic session. Well, you know, patience, patience is part of the process then too. And, you know, you can see 
you can see clients that are in this and know that this is going to take a little bit of time to get through, that they've had these discomforts for months, years, maybe decades. It's not going to just change overnight. There won't be some magic button or surgery to just pow, change it all of a sudden, just change that. That might not happen. We might have to have a certain amount of patience, as Freud used to say, a certain amount of patience for the state of being ill. Um, not because we want to stay there, not because we want to linger longer, not because we want to reinforce the discomforts any more than we have to, but instead because trying to change them too quickly or to insist or have expectations that they, they be different when, when they can't be is a, a way to set us up for more failure, for more, you know, lack of change, more consistently putting the same foot forward. Oh, I want something to be different. Oh, I can't change. It hasn't changed. Oh, I don't have the patience for it to be different. The more a person can be inside of their patience, the more likely the magic session is going to happen. You can see that just in the discrete experience of a session when you ask somebody to, you know, say that example, notice their heart beating a little bit faster and see if they can just be with that. You have to be patient enough to feel that autonomic thing happening. That's an autonomic nervous system thing. You're, you don't tell your heart to go fast. Your heart is more autonomous than that. Autonomic nervous system helps to run the pace of that. We'll have to watch that happen over time. And to do so, there'll have to be a certain amount or enough permission to see that over timeness happen to where something changes and then we can perceive that change having happened clients without any patience when you hear the way they speak the lack of patience you can at least think to yourself well i probably shouldn't expect a whole lot here nor should i press the patience you know you probably have to grow that and you might have to be even be quite sophisticated in how you bring people into increased amount of patience you can't just always say let's just be patient with that when when some people are not patient with it that line just you know, it doesn't go anywhere or it affronts. In fact, you can kind of miss the point that they feel impatient, that they need this to be done quicker. Now, you might not be able to change anything quicker, but you can at least kind of adjust how you're going to help people cultivate more patience, which they are going to need for these things to change. One, one other, another one, yeah, not one other, but another one is that people who come or have previous experience with mindfulness or focusing, Eugene Genlin's focusing um, kind of attention where you turn your attention into the felt sense and you, you kind of have this mindfulness where you, you just pay attention and become aware and, and open in your attention. People who come with that have prior experience with that, much more likely to see the magic session come forward quicker, sooner, easier, huh? Well, that's a a deviancy thing, at least in, in my culture, <laughs> I don't know about yours, but in my culture, people who can turn their attention into themselves and pay attention to themselves, that's a more or less a learned trait nowadays, it seems. And so the, you know, not everybody has that, not everybody by far. And when people don't have that, it's helpful to help to grow that before trying to execute what that gives you. Yeah. So Cultivating some focusing or mindfulness, probably in the guided way that we do in somatic experiencing, where we're being attentive to the 
you know, the pressures of pendulation and the call and siren song of the red vortex, you know, we might very well be helping to balance people's attention as they do that rather than just follow anything that they feel. And yet having this kind of open mindful awareness of, you know, open focus of my attention on, on what happens, uh, a, a really a critical element here inside with that is things like the observer and the witness, you know, maybe they could all be put in the same thing, but having a, a certain amount of observing stance, an observational stance of one's experience, it's such an interesting thing because you're, you're both trying to bring people in, in a kind of through the looking glass kind of way. That's an old somatic therapy kind of comment. I think it comes from Feldenkrais where you're trying to move your attention through the looking glass rather than just perceiving yourself from the outside. You're trying to feel yourself from the inside and kind of a focusing mindfulness kind of perspective there. And at the same time, there's this desire to have a certain observer or witness to one's experience where there's there's enough distance where you're not the experience yourself, but you're able to perceive that your experience is happening and you can feel it more or less from the inside of your experience, direct access to the felt sense as it were, but you're not exactly tied up in it so that there's enough distance. You can watch it happen and once again notice those differences and changes and allow this to happen. People who have a strong observer, a strong sense of witness of themselves, they, I, I, I don't know how to say this, except that they're, they're deviant. <laughs> they're deviant to the norm and, and uh, it's a positive trait. It's a positive trait. Now, of course, it can, it can become too much sometimes. This is especially true with certain kinds of meditation and mindful focus where you just kind of like really focus in and drill in on things and, and actually can end up helping things stay quite stuck not get so much movement because you're helping it to stay that way. Okay, there are caveats with all of these. There be problems where people trust you too much, you know, the the prestige of the practitioner is just too much and they can't like find for themselves without constantly referencing you. There are caveats to all of these and sure it could get hypertrophied or excessive and it makes a big difference if a person has an obser observing witness to them experience to their experience and if they don't it'll, you'll find I think you'll find that um, you'll be better off to help them cultivate that than trying to use it as if it was there if it's not there it'll be need to be grown it'll be need to um, you'll need to help them find it cultivate it well um, that all that all goes straight to this access to the felt sense you know or at least at least a few different channels of SIBAM or SIAM, you know, behavior. As Stephen Hoskinson does a nice job of pointing out that behavior is mostly witnessed from the outside and that we more or less feel our behavior from the inside. So he does a little thing with the language there, SIAM. We'll go there. SIAM, SIBAM. If people have different channels, access to different channels, it makes it a lot easier to participate in this thing we call somatic experiencing. You know, if if you're just into mentalization, if you if you just end up thinking about everything, you'll have seen probably that that makes it a little bit hard to get people to participate with their felt sense experience and, and noticing of, of differences, changes, whatever. People who have access to image and can also report on what they feel or people who are fairly attuned to their feeling states or the um, discomforts or comforts in their body, 
they just have a lot more ability to participate in our sessions. So when, when you hear, when you're listening, when you're talking with people, that their channel almost always runs to the emotions or their um, focus of attention always moves over to their thought process. It's not that you can't do good work there. It's not that you can't do appropriate work there. It's just that you're unlikely to get that magic session where undercoupled and overcoupled elements of experience are going to interrelate to one another and kind of drive some kind of process forward that's going to change. Unlikely to see that happen unless we are able to expand the number of channels of Cybam that we're able to engage with. In that way, um, you're, you're looking to kind of cultivate like people's ability to reference their feeling states, their physical states, their thought process, their um, images that they see, being able to um, participate with their body movements, their behaviors as they, they come forward. Those things will matter for the magic session. Oh, wow. What else is there? Um, relaxed mentalization. That's, that's one. I mean, you see people, um, in the, (laughs) you'll know people, you'll know clients for sure. I mean, maybe you are one of these yourself where every little thing that comes through gets pushed up against the process of thought of, is this valid? Is this not valid? Does this make sense? Et cetera, et cetera. When, when that can relax a little bit, and we can drop in a little bit more to the curiosity and the open focus and those other channels of Cybam. It makes uh, a, just a lot more flow likely to happen. Again, it's not that we can't do good work and important work with people who have a, a heightened sense of mentalization. In fact, there's a lot of pendulation that can be ha- can be found in there, and a lot of kind of holding of differences and different ideas and and balancing and and it can be the the resource as it were the the place that people are able to start from and therefore a good place to join with at the same time that easy flowing you know really differentiated session where things really um, express and change and such a relaxed mentalization is going to be a, an element of the positive deviancy approach there so if you if you see that over-mentalization, you could just think to yourself, well, that's something that we'll be hoping to soften or to decrease or lessen as we go through time here. Yeah, well, um, all of that, all of that um, definitely leads toward a certain amount of trust in the practitioner. You know, it's really easy to trust say Peter Levine when he's got all those books and he's been published and he's got 80 people in the crowd and and you've just flown across the country or across the state or driven across the city to come have this one hour session with him and you know it's it's not all it's not the only way he's ever worked and it's not the only way that that you can witness him working but it is something that we see a lot and we often reference those sessions as being super powerful and and uniquely special and and really the measure by which I'm trying to kind of make things happen in my office and well you know that that client has every reason to trust Peter at that moment there's just a whole lot of feedback one is that the whole environment and the whole prestige thing but also his feedback is really very accurate. He, he, he really misses when he, when he points out, oh, you know, something's changed. He's saying that when something's changed. When he asks you, oh, you know, like, um, 
do things get a little quieter now? He's asking you that when he's noticed things getting a little quieter. His feedback is accurate. And if your feedback is accurate, very quickly you can point or, you know, kind of name to your client without ever saying it, that you make sense, that what you have to say is accurate to their experience. Now, of course, when you're learning, sometimes, you know, you're going to like, try things. You're going to ask people, oh, I saw your shoulders lift there. Can you feel your shoulder? And, and you know, they don't really feel anything. And it, it feels for a moment like maybe they don't trust you so much. And so it becomes important, of course, to get ever more accurate when you are going to call a person's attention to something that when they're going to pay attention to it, there's going to be something there for them to feel that matters. That feedback matters. And the trust of the therapist grows out of not only all the prestige elements of how you set up your office or how you make yourself available and, you know, like you don't just answer the phone and say, oh, I can meet you anytime that you want. You know, you have you have certain times that you're available because, of course, the rest of the time you're you're busy helping other people. And, you know, there are all these prestige elements, but then fundamental to trusting trusting you is the quality of your feedback, of your request that if you ask, what do you notice now? And your client answers hesitantly, perhaps, um, I don't know, that you don't simply ask the same question two minutes later, expecting a different result. It's unlikely to get a different result, especially if you've asked it two, uh, maximum three times and had the same result. You can't expect it to change the third or fourth time. There's something else that has to change, and and that something else is going to have to be your intervention. Like You're the one who's going to have to change. And that's how you're going to build up your trust for your clients, that they're going to trust you more the more accurate your questions, your requests, your comments, your feedback are is. Yeah, more timely it is, all of that. So there's no question that you'll see clients that don't trust you don't trust you, don't trust the therapist, don't trust Peter Levine. And you'll notice that when that happens, sessions do not go as smoothly. They just, they can't, they can't go as smoothly. In fact, sessions can't go smoothly without all of these things in some degree or another. They can compensate for one another. All of these elements that we've just looked at, these attributes, you can have, ah, say a person who um, has a real deep appreciation of their pain and that they have they have this overwhelming sense of this needing to change, but by contrast, their curiosity is just completely gone. They just, they, they have no more curiosity for it. They can't pay attention to it in any novel kind of way. They, they know exactly what to expect. It just repeats itself the same way. You know, a lot of times you want to, you want to have all of these involved. You want to have every attribute of these things that you see in the magic session inside of your session, but sometimes they just, they just kind of balance each other out. A person's pain and their awareness of their pain makes it so that, yeah, they're not curious about this, but they're invested enough out of a need and desire that they're willing to go along with you to wait for another moment to see what happens next rather than just prejudge it. And maybe they don't have any or don't want to have or don't not inclined to have much curiosity anymore. At the same time, you might be able to compensate for that with your own curiosity based on their appreciation of the problem, their appreciation of the problem, increasing their investment and their willingness to go along with anything. You know, it's not exactly how you'd like to do it. And yet these um, different attributes can, can kind of balance each other out. So there, 
so often I I think of them, you know, whatever it's, that's worth. I, I think of these as necessary conditions, but not necessarily sufficient, not in themselves. You know, in, in philosophy, when you're trying to establish an argument, you're looking for necessary and sufficient conditions. What What's necessary for this thing to become true and what's sufficient? How much of this is enough for it to establish truth? These magic sessions, these really fluid sessions where you just feel that real job satisfaction and intelligence inside of the organism, inside of our work and such, it um, they they have things that they share in common. Maybe maybe this list is more or less a complete list. I'm I'm pretty certain that these things are all present when you when you have a magic session. You'll you'll see people being curious and you'll see their patience and play and you'll you'll see them show up more or less on time. You'll see their investment. You'll see their willingness to to turn with your request and intervention. You'll see them trusting you. You'll see their their mindful, open awareness observer kind of watching what's happening and having having an interest in that and and their willingness to to feel the differences as they happen, et cetera, et cetera. This is all going to be present in those magic sessions and when they are not present, I think by degree, you'll see things be more stumbly or stall or not quite so fluid. And if you want them to become more fluid, if you want your sessions to have more back and forth and such, attending to these preconditions as much as to the, you know, the exact idea of what it is that you think the work is about might be as important as anything else, like helping people to cultivate their curiosity or to note that things are sometimes worse and sometimes not as bad as that, that the differences and the ability to notice differences exist, et cetera, et cetera. These things, um, they'll all play a part. They'll all play a role. Now, it's true. I'm not going to go into um, how to how to bring all these out right now. I'm going to just give you some uh, thought today on this here, episode number 67, Twig's SE Reflections, the positive deviancy approach to getting your sessions uh, a little bit more dynamic. Yes, indeed. Be looking to help people cultivate those things. Investment, therapist prestige, curiosity, participation, appreciation of the problem, contract to do this and not something else, ability to notice differences, trusting of the practitioner, awareness of the process, at least enough of it, patience, yeah, at least enough of that, mindfulness from focusing capacity for attention on the, ins- in, you know, felt sense experience, different channels of Cybam, uh, a certain, well, maybe I didn't mention this one, a certain dispassion, yeah, I didn't mention this, dispassionate stance, you know, um, that's something that you'll see really seasoned practitioners have is that they you know know when to bring out and and lean in with their empathy and other times and and almost always to withdraw and kind of hold out their sympathy but to to lean in with their empathy but then also at other times to have a certain amount of dispassion a certain amount of distance a certain amount of uh, tranquility in their voice like oh yeah this doesn't bother me or oh yeah that's happening and and that's that's part of it or yeah wow that that sounds rough and and it often is and at the same time i don't know if it's something that we need to 
concern ourselves with quite so much as as we need to concern ourselves with um, just the process and the and the power of change. Dispassionate stance it, it makes a big difference when you have a client who moves into a certain amount of acceptance of of the way things are and, and a little less passion about it, a little less pressure. Well, with that list again. Uh, observing witness and yeah relaxed mentalization does the list go on i don't know i'll let you think about it when you when you're in your sessions and some of them go really super smooth what what's happening what what are those clients that you're working with there what are they expressing when you've when you've seen super super smooth sessions what did the client and the client practitioner relationship have that most of your sessions don't have or you know some number of your sessions don't have and how is it that you can cultivate some of those attributes bring those in and help all of your clients do that much better yeah because um that's what we want we want all of our clients to be able to feel that much better that much faster positive deviancy approach i will look at this again um, particularly in that little workshop where to start and figure out some way to make more of this information available to you all. And if you're in Western Massachusetts or anywhere in the little surrounds around there, maybe come on out on, I think it's January 27th. You can look at that on my schedule. I'll talk about that in the tracking twig. But for now, I will say, I hope you're doing well out there. Take good care. Bye-bye. Here's a tracking twig moment for folks who want to know what I'm up to. Late in January 2016 here, I'm going to travel off to Western Massachusetts, specifically on January 27th in Northampton. I'm going to give a presentation on where to start and reflecting on these positive deviancy elements and how to take clients through very initial sessions, beginning sessions, maybe three, five, ten sessions to help cultivate these various different attributes that then make it so much easier to have truly productive and successful sessions later on. A bit of a protocol session series sequence, not meant exactly to put us all in a box, but more to help us think about what it is that we need to have in order to have successful sessions, although also very helpful as a protocol. Where to start? January 27th, Northampton, Massachusetts. I am going to do something that allows us to have access to the information for those of us, for those of you who won't be there. You can look for all the details around that at liberationispossible.org backslash schedule. If you are there, I'm really looking forward to a good social time and a lot of fun sharing this information. Hope you're, hope you're going to be able to join in. Okay, take good care now. Bye-bye.